Good morning, and good morning those of you who are watching from home. It's great to have you with us as well. If you want to get a head start, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. As we begin to wind up this um, almost year-long series on the kingdom of God, uh, I promised you last time I was with you that we would spend a couple weeks talking about uh, what I have been calling kingdom outposts, kingdom outposts. Um, And I I have recited a definition for you guys now many times over the last several months, and I'm sure that you know it by now, that that we are defining the kingdom of God as God's rule over God's people in God's place. And when it comes to the idea of place, we have gone to great lengths at times to show that, that the kingdom of God, at least in this present age, now in the time between Jesus' resurrection and his return, that his kingdom is not a kingdom in the geopolitical sense. It is, not a, it is not a political nation. It is not a political power in the sense that we see them here um, during this time. Christians are not trying to take over the world or even a piece of the world, nor is our primary aim to reform the institutions of society. Now that may happen, and we pray and hope that it will happen with some of the things and some of the ways that we get involved in this world, but that is not what we are aiming at. That is not our primary goal. And and yet, that does not mean that the kingdom of God is completely invisible or that it takes up no space in the world, no physical space. Because That's because when we Christians, as the people of God living in community, succeed in living out real kingdom lives in view of the watching world, we are actually establishing what I am calling kingdom outposts, places where a kingdom influence is being exerted in a very visible and very effective way in this world, even though we are not from this world, right? We learned that last time, that we're strangers and aliens, and yet we have outposts here. Last time I was with you, we looked at 1 Peter 2, and we saw how we Christians are supposed to be proclaiming the excellencies, the moral beauties of our God, and in doing that, we're also supposed to be living among lost people in such a way that they are moved to glorify God, eventually coming to Christ in faith. And today and next week, I want to look at two examples from the book of Acts where that actually happened, where we have examples of it. And, uh, and, and I'm hoping that as, we, that as we do this, we can learn how we at First Alliance can be a much more effective kingdom outpost here in Davidson County and beyond, and that as you as individuals and as families will also know how to plug into this kingdom outpost and how God wants to use you to influence your world for Christ. Uh, and the first example of an outpost that I want to look at from the book of Acts is probably the classic one. It is the first church to ever exist and we see the story of its beginnings in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. So go over to verse 42. I'm going to just read through verse 47, probably a very familiar passage for a lot of you. But here is one of the kingdom outposts that we can look at. And this is the first church in Jerusalem, and it says in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, or day by day, those who were being saved. 
Now, I don't know what jumped out at you first when you looked at this passage, but as I read through it, the first word that jumps out at me is that, that first verb that we see, devoted. Devoted. These, these brand new Christians, it says, devoted themselves to certain things. And for, for me, it's interesting that, that they did not devote themselves to running around Jerusalem telling everybody all about Jesus, right? Because you think maybe they'd want to do that because that would be an obvious thing to go and tell everybody about this salvation you've received. And, I, and there's no doubt that these Christians knew that they had to do that and that that was supposed to happen, that this gospel about the death and resurrection of Christ had to get out to everybody. And yet their first impulse was not to run around talking about that. The first impulse was to gather together in a community with other Christians. Their first impulse was really not so much outward, but inward. Well, why was that the case? Why was that the case? You know that I don't, I don't use a lot of movie-based illustrations in my, in my messages anymore, because, simply because there are so few movies that everyone has seen and that are appropriate to talk about you know, from a pulpit. But, but there are a few movies that everyone is pretty much familiar with, and there is a scene in The Little Mermaid, okay? Disney rated G. Uh, most of you have probably seen it with your kids. Dawn and I actually saw it in the theater back in 1990 or 1989 when it first came out shortly after we were married. So it's been around a while, and most of you have probably seen it. For those three of you who haven't, I'll, 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 I'll summarize it a little bit. It's, it's, a, it's about a mermaid who, she's a teenage mermaid, and she falls in love with a human guy, and so she wants to become human, basically. And that's the plot, that's the beginning of the plot, at least. And there's a scene uh, what happens is, of course, her dad is not into this idea, and, and nobody really is except for Ariel, that's her name. But in the middle of the movie, thanks to the sea witch, and we'll talk about that whole line of, of, of the plot, that person's got some issues, but, but anyway, thanks to the sea witch, Ariel gets her wish, and she becomes a human. And, and at the moment of Ariel's transformation from a mermaid into a human, it's a very dramatic moment in the cartoon, and you see her fins kind of split and she gets legs, but then it cuts to a picture of Ariel's face. And all of a sudden, her eyes widen in panic. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because she's a human being and she's on the ocean floor. And she's not going to last down there like that for very long. And so in a scene that, that you're going to see before you hear that I haven't worked out all the physics on quite yet. Her, her two best friends, who are a flounder and a crab, somehow succeed in grabbing her beneath the arms and dragging her all the way to the top of the ocean so she can get her first breath of air. Now, keep that picture in mind, if you don't mind. These people in Acts 2.42 that we just read about are the same people, these people in the church now, are the same people that Peter was talking to back at the, in the last few verses here in his sermon on Pentecost. And Peter called them to repent. He said, turn away from your sin, turn away from your self-reliance, turn away from depending on anything else for your salvation and for your eternal life, and turn to Jesus Christ who has died for you and risen again for you. And they had repented, they had done this, and as they did this, the Holy Spirit had come in and brought their souls back from the dead. They now were quite literally new people with new lives. They were changed. They were transformed at the core of their being. And you need to know that if you're a Christian, you've also been transformed very profoundly. You, are, you have very little in common in some ways with the people around you. You are very different than your non-Christian friends. You may look a lot like them, but you're very, very different. For instance, there are things that they have to worry about that you don't have to worry about anymore, like fear of death, like being a slave to sin, like being God's enemies like dying without God's forgiveness 
You don't need to worry about that anymore. But you know what? There are some other things that they don't worry about and you didn't used to worry about before you were a believer, but now you have to worry about them. Because you now have a whole new set of needs that you didn't have before. And you will not survive very long spiritually if these needs are not met. You have a brand new life inside of you that needs to be fed and encouraged and cultivated. And if this doesn't happen, you will find yourself spiritually gasping for air. And so we see these baby Christians here in Acts immediately devoting themselves to certain things. Not because Peter and John told them, hey, in order to be a good Christian, you should go to church. But they had to, like a baby taking its first breath, they instinctively knew what they needed to do to survive and to thrive in this new life that God had given them. They just automatically did it. They had a craving that needed to be filled. And may I suggest to you that if you're here this morning, and we're going to talk about four things that they devoted themselves to, and as we talk about those four things, if you find that you don't have a craving for any of those things, that none of them make you go, wow, I need some of that, that maybe what you need to do is look inside of yourself and, and, and discover whether you really are a believer or not, whether Jesus has really transformed your soul, or whether you're just on, on some kind of moral improvement crusade by going to church. Has Jesus really given you a new life through the Holy Spirit, through faith in him and his death and resurrection on your behalf? But let's take a brief look at each of these four things that the people devoted themselves to, starting with the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Now, the word teaching here refers, the Greek word refers not to an activity, but to the content of what is being taught. In, in other places, it is translated doctrine. So what this means, doctrine might not get you real excited. That word might not be a thrilling word for you. But, but what this means, first of all, is that you did not have to be in the same room as the apostles to benefit from this. You didn't have to hear the word coming directly from Peter or John or Andrew's mouth. Just like today, you might not have to hear the word directly coming from a pastor or whoever um, to benefit from the teaching because it is the teaching itself, not the person who is speaking, that makes the difference. And, and it says here, the people basically devoted themselves to the truth of the gospel and to all the other biblical truth that helped them to understand it and apply it to their lives. They knew that thriving and surviving in this life, if they were going to do it, it meant consuming the Word of God, taking it in and processing it and seeing it worked out in their lives and relationships. They knew they needed that. And some of you might be saying now, after hearing me say that this is about the content, not about the activity of teaching, you might be saying, wow, what a relief, because I have a Bible at my house. In fact, I have a bunch of Bibles at my house. I have different translations. I have all this truth in written form that the early church didn't have, and so I don't need the church there. I can pull this part off on my own. Yeah. Not so fast, cowboy. Let me, let me give you a little, just a testimony from my own life, okay, and then I'll, I'll back it up from God's Word because that's a lot more certain. Um, I'm a pastor, Okay. I've studied God's Word a bunch. I have a master's degree in pastoral ministry. I have taken classes in homiletics and hermeneutics and Greek and Hebrew and Old Testament and New Testament. And, and I have been teaching people from God's Word for over 25 years. All right? This is just to say this, that although I do not consider myself yet to have really scratched the surface of the richness of God's Word, by His grace, He has directed my life in such a way that I have had the privilege of being able to learn the Bible more than most people. Okay? Now, do I benefit from my time alone with the Word of God? Yes. Certainly. Do I, do I benefit from hearing gifted preachers on the radio and on the internet? Absolutely. But listen, I find those things are not enough 
They're not enough for me. There's something missing if I just take in God's truth like that. I, I find there is something uniquely powerful about sitting in a Sunday school class that I am not teaching or sitting in a small group led by Dawn so that I don't have to do all the talking. And that's because when I hear the Word of God bouncing around in these contexts, you know, as people interact with it and ask questions about it and make observations about it and talk about what it means to them and how it's changing their lives, when, when that's happening, the Holy Spirit is kind of bringing my heart to life and He's quickening my mind and God's truth is just sinking in faster and deeper than at other times. This can also happen to you, by the way, when you're like talking about the sermon as you, as you stack chairs in the gym after the service, or when you discuss the content of your Sunday school lesson with your family or with another group of believers at a local restaurant after church or during the week. There is no substitute for that kind of interaction. None. Here's the Word of God saying it, not me saying it. Colossians 3.16 says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The idea here is overflow. Okay? It's, it's the truth that God is giving you is supposed to be shared, talked over, worked out with the rest of the body of Christ, not by yourself. So you know, to use an illustration from the human body, this is kind of how God's Word gets digested, how it gets broken down in community. It's how, it's how the difficult parts get broken up into understandable parts. It's how the, the, the wrong ideas that we might get get filtered out by brothers and sisters. It's how the truth gets to us in a form that can really change our lives. The, pip, the picture of biblical teaching in the New Testament is not merely the transmission of truth from the pulpit to the pew. It is that, but it's not just that. It's how it's that the truth then gets processed, actually processed in community as you teach one another and encourage one another and warn one another, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're really going to understand the gospel in all of its fullness and power, you're going to need your church brothers and sisters to play a part in that. And the first Christians knew that. They devoted themselves to getting together around God's word. Second, they devoted themselves, uh, Luke says, to the fellowship, to the fellowship. And again, the Greek word does not mean an activity. So in, in this case, it, it doesn't, the early Christians, they weren't just devoted to the practice of getting together, although you see they did a lot of that, obviously. They were devoted, it says, to one another and to the church, to the people. This is an extremely important distinction, especially for people today, and a lot of you need to listen up right now. It is one thing to dedicate yourselves to meeting the spiritual needs of your family by making sure that everybody spends enough time doing Christian activities. It is quite another thing to really devote yourselves to a group of people who become your brothers and sisters. Very different. And a lot of people in the church today haven't figured that out. And you see down in verse 45, these new Christians are actually making financial sacrifices to help each other out in time of need, even though they probably don't even know each other that well yet. This is just what family does when its members are truly devoted to one another. One of the, uh, one of the big strengths of our church, according to the survey that 74 of you filled out, during the month of September. And thank you for doing that, by the way. It's very helpful. The board and elders and a few others have, have gone over that. I'm not going to present the whole thing to you in any form right now, but I may refer to it a couple of times today. But, but I found out on that survey, we found out that many, many of you agreed, I got a very high score, that your church family would be there for you in time of need. That was a big strength, okay? However, I do note that not everybody agreed and there were a few comments from people who said they didn't always feel like they were part of things. Now, 
One of the big questions that gets asked, and we ask it all the time in leadership, is, well, is that on us or is that on them? Right? Maybe a more constructive way to ask the question is this. Well, I know I can't reach out to everybody. I know I can't include everybody personally, but is there one person? Is there one family that I can reach out to and try to make this body life thing as real for them as it is for me? Maybe that's where it starts. The fellowship. The third thing the Christians devoted themselves to, it says, was the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread, right? Now, yeah, all right, now we're talking, right? There's a lot of difference of opinion among New Testament scholars as to whether this refers to the Lord's Supper, the communion ceremony as we practiced it last week, for instance, or whether it just refers to people, just a bunch of Christians eating together. Let me say this. It may refer to communion. It definitely refers to Christians eating together. And one of the reasons it's so hard to sort this out is that it appears that the way the early church did communion is they got together to fellowship over a meal and at some point during the meal took the bread and the cup and did a formal observance of communion. And that's not surprising given that that's the way that Jesus did it with his disciples the first time it was celebrated. There is something, there is something spiritually beneficial about eating together with other Christians. There just is, especially when you're all conscious of the Lord's presence among you. Eating together, it's an expression of fellowship, yes, but it's also an expression of intimacy when you share a table, when you share a bowl with somebody. It's an expression of belonging. It's an expression of acceptance. This past Sunday, Wes did a very good job of a lot of things, but he did a very good job of pointing out the great fellowship meal that God is planning for the nations in Isaiah chapter 25, and he connected that to the Lord's Supper. There's also a passage in Exodus 27 where God celebrates the establishment of his covenant with Israel by basically inviting the elders of the people halfway up Mount Sinai to have dinner with him. The breaking of bread connects us to one another and even to God on a spiritual level, and it even does more than that because the breaking of bread, you probably figured this out, but it calls to mind the presence of Jesus himself. Think about Jesus and breaking bread. Don't they kind of go together if you read the Gospels? Whether he's breaking bread at the feeding of the multitudes, he's breaking bread at the Last Supper, he's breaking bread uh, for those Emmaus Road disciples after his resurrection. There's something about breaking bread with one another that just reminds us of Jesus, right? Eating together from a common spread just reminds us of our Lord. It brings him in. And then just connecting this verse here to verse 46 where it says they were breaking bread where? In their homes right, in their homes. Don't miss the significance of that. These believers did not have a potluck in Solomon's colonnade at the temple. Now, I don't know whether that would have been appropriate or not, but that's not the way they did it. They did this in their homes where they could really build relationships with their brothers and sisters and kind of, you know, linger for coffee for a while after dinner and get to know each other. It might not be too much of a stretch to say this, that one good measure of the spiritual health of a church is the amount of time its people spend under one another's roofs. So when's the last time that you, that someone from the church, maybe even someone you don't know all that well yet, got to experience this blessing at your home, right? The breaking of bread. And then let me, let me mention this last one. Prayer, obviously, but it's actually translated correctly here and, and literally in the English Standard Version, which I read. They devoted themselves to literally the prayers, the prayers. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means this was not a bunch of individual Christians each dedicating themselves to the practice of individual prayer. 
although I'm sure they did a lot of individual prayer. What Luke is describing here for us is, is people setting aside a specific time, probably on at least a weekly basis, but maybe more than that, to get together with other believers to play, pray for specific requests, some of which may have even been pre-prepared prayers. Now, in the evangelical church, we struggle with this one, don't we? We don't do this. Some years ago, Don and I were invited to a wedding that took place in an Episcopal church up in Virginia. And um, I spent about half the time of the wedding pretty much just ignoring the whole ceremony and thumbing through this thing that I had found in the pew rack called the Book of Common Prayer. Anyone ever seen that in, in an Episcopal or Anglican church? And, I, and it was written about four to 500 years ago by Thomas Cranmer and some other guys in the English Reformation, and they've added to it since then. But, but I'm looking down at this book, and I'm like, wow, there are sample prayers for all sorts of needs and occasions, and they're really biblical prayers. And there's a prayer in there like every Sunday of the year for spiritual growth and blessing, and they're great prayers. And I was thinking, man, these are the most awesome prayers I've ever seen written down. People should pray them all the time. And I guess the Episcopalians must do this sometimes. And I hope they realize what they're saying because the prayers are that great. And I know that we don't get into formality a whole lot at First Alliance Church, and I get it, and maybe that's okay, but listen, maybe this is how we can apply it. When do we get together to pray, together to pray, not just for the specific needs of the people in our little group and their families, but for the needs of the church, for the needs of our community, for the needs of our nation, maybe the needs of the church as a whole? Might it be okay once in a while to go through the Lord's Prayer together and maybe use it as a model in our prayer group? Might it be okay to just read through and pray through the great prayers of Paul in Ephesians and Ephesians and Colossians or the Magnificat of Mary in, in Luke chapter 1? Perhaps we could even pray through a psalm together. You know, it's dangerous for me to preach this because I know a lot of the application of this falls on the people who plan prayer in the church, and guess who that is, right? me and the elders, and, and so we bear some responsibility for this, but, but for all of y'all, um, can you ask yourself this question? When was the last time I got into a group of Christians and prayed together, especially for something other than the specific needs of the people in the room? Or if you're a small group leader, or a Sunday school teacher, or an influencer, as we like to say today, in one of those environments, when was the last time that your group got, got outside of itself in prayer? and prayed for the church as a whole or for some greater spiritual blessings to be poured down on the congregation or even prayed scripture. You can do that. <clears throat> One last comment, okay? There is a prayer meeting at First Alliance Church. It happens every Wednesday. Even when Kids Club doesn't meet, it usually happens. It happens from 6.45 to 7.45 every Wednesday night. It is, not, it is in the library over here, okay? Big room, there's room for more people in the prayer meeting. Um, it is not the only time that you can pray with other members of your church family, but it is a really good opportunity. It really is. And our prayer meetings have changed in recent months, okay? You need to know that what is going on over there is not just an organ recital, if you know what I mean, right? This hurts and this hurts and this hurts. And it is not that. We're not just talking about our maladies. And it's not a time when a bunch of tired-sounding people read down a list of requests trying to get through as many things as possible before the closing bell. I know I've seen that happen, okay? These days, listen, we don't even get to the list anymore until we're halfway through at the prayer meeting. We spend time in praise and worship. We pray for our church and our world based on a prayer or a passage found in God's Word. Who knows, maybe even a little bit like the early church did it. 
and then we lift up the specific needs of individuals. It's much different. So just saying, if you haven't come out in a while, and you maybe, or maybe you never have, you might want to give it a try. We'd love to have you. All right. You can come too. The, the early church uh, figured out very quickly they weren't going to accomplish a whole lot or even last very long if they didn't commit themselves to prayer, not just for themselves, but for the whole enterprise and for the kingdom of God. Okay, just one more comment before I change gears for a minute or two at the end. This, this expression, they devoted themselves, they devoted themselves, very often has another dimension of meaning to it, and that's because very often, in fact, more often than not, it appears in the face of opposition. So the phrase really means this most of the time, to continue steadfastly in something regardless of what or who is trying to stop you from doing it. Okay? So let me ask you a question. Do you think that these early Christians had lives outside of church? They probably did, right? Do you think that in order to make space in their lives for these priorities here, they would have had to maybe do some rearranging or make some sacrifices? Do you think that some of them maybe even paid the price through misunderstandings with other people that would crop up, like with their boss or with their friends or maybe even with their families, you know? Honey, it seems like you're hanging out with those Christians a lot lately. Do you really have to go to another prayer meeting? This is real. And you know better than I do what what things are in your life, in your schedule, and in your heart that compete with the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and praying together. What might you have to fight through in order to truly devote yourself to these things? And I'm not saying you have to go from zero to 60 in, in one week. What I'm saying is what's the first step you could take? Let me try to bring all this home a little bit today by considering one final question that some of you are already asking, and you should, which is, okay, so how is this an outpost? How, wh- wh- where's outpost here? All I see is a bunch of Christians doing things with other Christians. How does that impact the greater community? Right? That's a good question, I think. But first of all, before we try to answer it, let's at least notice here that there clearly is an impact. We can't get around that because two things are definitely happening according to Luke. First, the Christians are gaining favor in the eyes of the general public. They, so everybody has a good opinion of them. Secondly, more people are getting saved literally every day. That would be cool, wouldn't it? So before we get into any specifics of how, let's just say it right now. When the church really acts like the church, it makes an impact. When the church learns like the church and loves like the church and shares like the church and prays like the church, it cannot help impacting its community. It will. As far as as how this takes place, I would say we have three hints here. The first hint is in verse 43 where we see that there are miracles taking place in this church. And it says that every soul, and that, that, that term could very well include outsiders, was being blown away by what was going on among these Christians. You know what? It's, it's hard to discount it when your friend Claudius runs off to prayer meeting with his crutches and comes back without them. Right? That would kind of make an impact, wouldn't it? And at First Alliance, I think we have seen some miracles Really, I mean, maybe not with the same level of drama as some of the ones in the early church, and yes, I know it was the apostles doing the miracles, but there are clearly some medical events that I know have happened in our fellowship, some of them kind of recent, in response to our prayers that have been way outside the curve, statistically speaking. In other words, they probably shouldn't have happened, but they did. 
And going back a few years, I will never, ever forget the stunned expression one night on the face of a doctor who walked into a waiting room at Forsyth Hospital after one of these miracles had happened and seeing about 30 of you, and some of you were there, you know what I'm talking about, who were there around midnight to support and pray for this family. I saw a medical doctor's chin hit the floor, and that's almost not an exaggeration. There's an impact. But even beyond those things, I have seen some changed lives in this fellowship that are, that are certainly the result of an undeniable and supernatural work of God. And while we're on the subject, in seven days, next Sunday, we are going to celebrate, at last count, I think, at least six miracles. Because when you baptize a new believer, we're celebrating a miracle, right? It's a resurrection, actually. So that's a pretty good miracle. So if you're getting baptized next week, or if your kid or your grandkid is getting baptized next week, or if you just like watching people get baptized and you get excited about it like me, then talk it up. Guess what's happening in our church on Sunday? Or guess what happened? I mean, I personally go home on cloud nine after baptizing people. I am supremely jealous because Wes is doing most of the baptisms next week. Ba- baptism is not primarily about a commitment that someone makes. It is first and foremost the recognition of a miracle that God has done in their life. That's the first hint, this, these, these miracles and changed lives that people are seeing. The second hint to me is that this phrase, enjoying the favor of all the people, like all the people kind of like the Christians or at least had a positive impression of them, it's in the same sentence with a lot of these activities that Christians are taking part in. And in that sentence, I don't know if you noticed it, but Luke seems to go above and beyond to talk about how much these believers were eating at each other's houses and how much they liked it. You know, I'm, I, I'm picturing the early church kind of maybe packing on the pounds a little bit, you know? Oh, they must be a Christian. They put on like 25 in the, last, in the last month or so. But if you think about it, it is a little bit weird. And that's because the people that were getting together at each other's houses are not necessarily people that would hang out with each other under normal circumstances. For a lot of them, they, they pro- probably all they had in common was Jesus. And yet this explosion of hospitality is not a burden to them. It turns out to be a very natural and enjoyable thing that they just do. And you've got to think that some of these new Christians were not the most popular people in the community. Maybe this is the first time they've ever really felt like they were part of something, and they've ever really been included in something like this. It was like, boom, instant family. You know, and it was real. The Christians were not faking this love for one another. Luke says they had glad and sincere hearts. Jesus once said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You got it. The general public noticed this. And honestly, I would be a little surprised if there weren't at least a few non-Christians who found their way into some of these dinner gatherings. You know, because it doesn't say anywhere these new believers ditched all their non-Christian friends. I can't read that anywhere. Which kind of leads me to the third hint as we get about how this impact took place, which is in verse 47, where we learn that as soon as you got saved, you were in. As soon as you got saved, you were in. You were not put on probation. You were not cleared for a trial run. You were immediately into the instant family. You were included in their number, is the way Luke puts it, right there, that day. This had to be a pretty attractive thing for people. So these Christians, you know, these Christians are really different. They're a little strange maybe, but they're really different. But you know what? As soon as you become one of them, you're one of them. As soon as you become one of them, they accept you all the way. So think about it this way. When you share the good news of Jesus with someone, when you share with them that Christ died according to the scriptures and was raised again the third day, and he did this for them, that they could be forgiven and justified in the sight of Almighty God and have a relationship with him and live forever, 
when you share that, that is not just an invitation for them to change their mind about what they believe. And it is not even just an invitation for them to, 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 to transfer their trust and allegiance to Jesus. It is those things. But you are also inviting them into a family. You are also inviting them into a family at that moment, into your family. Actually, probably into this family, right? So let me close by telling you about something that I have observed over the years at multiple churches. And, and um, I'm not sure why this happens, but I, I have a few theories. You can shut off the video now if you want. What, what I have noticed is, is that the people in a church, the people in the local church that often have the greatest burden for the lost and are the most excited about sharing the gospel with, with non-Christians are very often people that seem to have a hard time plugging into the local church. It's a weird thing, but I've noticed it multiple times. Their attendance is spotty. They don't participate in a lot of stuff sometimes. They may even kind of disappear for weeks or months at a time, and you wonder what's happening to them. And at a time, these people that are really evangelists seem to have no use for the body of Christ. And I've wondered why that is, and I don't know all the reasons for it. I have some theories. I think some of these people, as part of their evangelistic gift, they just love being with non-Christians. God's given them that. So much so, though, that they lose touch with their brothers and sisters in the Lord. Or maybe they learn to see the church, because they spend so much time with lost people, they learn to see the church through the eyes of lost people, which makes them more sensitive to hypocrisy and formalism and when people are just playing church, and they get disillusioned. Or maybe we just make these people feel a little bit uncomfortable sometimes because they hang out with the wrong people a lot, and we get suspicious of them. Let me just say this, okay? If you're one of those people, if you're one of those people who are very evangelistically minded, and if you're watching me from home, and you're one of those people and you're not here because we've given you a hard time or something like that, listen, we need you. We need you. We desperately need you. We need you to share your excitement for reaching the lost and your perspective on how they think. We need you to let us know when you get to share Christ so we can celebrate with you when you're able to do that. And so we can be inspired to do it more ourselves. We need you. But guess what? You also need us. You really do. You need us to help keep you biblically centered, morally accountable, and to help you understand the richness and the depths of the gospel that you are sharing. You need us to pray for you and encourage you. And what you also need is a place of transition where you can invite those people that you're sharing with into meaningful relationships with others who know Christ. And I will tell you this, if there's anything at all to Acts 2, 42 to 47, non-believers have to see the body of Christ in action. Last comment, is, as I was looking at the results of those surveys, there was one, most of it kind of went as we thought in the board and elders and all, but, but there was one, for me, really pleasant surprise. When you were ex assessing the strengths of First Alliance Church, the things that we did well, number one turned out to be that we preach and teach solid, relevant biblical truth. But we knew on the board and elders that was your priority and we knew that would probably get a high score. But listen, in second place, in second place after that, out of nine questions with an average of 9.3 out of 10 was your agreement with this statement. I would have no hesitation inviting my unbelieving friends to First Alliance. Right. Now, that, that makes a pastor's heart get really warm because that's what I pray for for this church, right. a place that, that you can invite your unbelieving friends and they can come and we will not slam dunk them, but they will get the gospel, right? right? And they will experience body life here. And apparently you guys agree with that. Right. So, 
Can I ask you to put your money where your mouth is? Right? Whom do you know who needs to see the body of Christ in action? I look forward to meeting them. Right? Let's pray.